another episode of My Ovaries Made Me Do It. I'm Deanna, here with my lovely co-host Meg. Today we are discussing the media's effect on child sexuality and the loss of innocence that can occur. This episode was inspired by the movie Cuties on Netflix. With us is my incredible sister, an expert in her field of child psychology and renowned within the world of our family. Please welcome Dr. Nicole Agresto. Nicole, will you start with some of your qualifications and what makes you an expert in this field? Sure. First off, I'd like to thank both of you for having me on. Um, It's a real honor for me. Uh, As far as my qualifications, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. I have a master's degree in educational psychology with a concentration in child adolescent clinical psychology. I have another master's degree in clinical psychology and I have a doctorate in clinical psychology with a specialty in children and adolescents. So all my uh, education has been in psychology and uh, clinical work and focusing with children and adolescents. All of my clinical experience has also been with children and adolescents. Um, I would say that I work with uh, ages three to about 30, um, like that's because young adults are also in my wheelhouse there. So some of the settings I've worked in have been in traditional schools, as well as, excuse me, uh, centers, which are for children who could not maintain their behaviors like in a traditional school setting. So they get sent to a a different kind of school. So it's a little bit more of an intense population of children. I've worked in residential settings uh, with children and their families, uh, community mental health I've done. uh, And right now I'm in private practice. And the areas I generally specialize in are in child adolescent development, I mostly do therapy with specialties in uh, anxiety, trauma, uh, autism, depression, and I also do uh, psychological evaluations for things like learning disabilities, autism, any kind of emotional or behavioral uh, concern, or even gifted program placements. So that's a little bit of some of my background. Wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us here today. I was actually really uh, excited to do this podcast because my dissertation actually was on the impact that social media has on adolescents' offline sexual behaviors. So um, I, I, I know this this general area uh, fairly well. That's awesome. That's pretty amazing because that's exactly what this episode is about. So how do you see that with social media, with our pop stars being so accessible, not just during performances, mm-hmm but on Instagram, in their everyday life, showing themselves often in a more sexualized way. How do you think that that is currently affecting or influencing our younger generation, you know, 10, 11, 13-year-olds, even younger? Is that moving them more towards us, like their sexual life? Well, the, the first thing that I'd like to just kind of to provide some context is, is to understand like the developmental tasks of, let's say, we're, I'm going to call it adolescence. And yes, that can range anywhere from, let's say, 12 on, but it does apply younger. The most important thing during this time in children's lives is understanding themselves and who they are, but more importantly, how they fit in with others. So group identity and acceptance is the primary developmental task. So this is where, you know, children and adolescents are making a shift from, you know, uh, their parents being their primary persons of importance to now uh, peers, friends, and others. And so with adolescents, it's a very like egocentric kind of time. So what uh, children, teens think is that, you know, they, they look at themselves a whole lot, right? They, there's a very self-critical, they think about themselves all the time, their appearance, what's going on, what do they say? But what they assume is that everyone else in the world is looking at them with that same level of intensity and scrutiny, all right? And I think that that part is really important. Uh, teens have a really hard time understanding that others are not focused on them right? (laughs) They just do. It's, it's, it's really, it it is. And it's not in a, like a, like a narcissistic kind of way at all. It tends to be actually very hurtful uh, because, you know, I'll have teenagers who walk down a hallway and tell me with a hundred percent certainty 
that every single one of the people that they pass are looking, thinking, and judging them. Like 100%, yeah, hypercritical right? Hypercritical of ourselves. Hypercritical. Yeah. So I, I think what's really important, and I'm, I'm going to expand upon it later, is just really understanding the importance of uh, personal identity and group identity, because that's how these other things, such as media or pop stores, uh, become so impactful because it lines up with the developmental time for that to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. So as far as like, you know, the Pop-Tars, it's interesting because, yes, I, I, I believe that, you know, environment, our experiences, what we learn absolutely impacts us. So it really, you know, it, it depends on many different things. Not everyone is going to be impacted in the same way as someone else, right? We, we look at ages, you know, we look at previous experiences, when I was doing my research for my dissertation, you know, when you're when you're doing any kind of research that involves technology, it's always behind. Because by the time the research comes out, the technology has already advanced. Yeah. Right? So mm-hmm. when I was doing my dissertation, you know, I think I finished it in 2013 and had started it, you know, a number of years earlier. The research that was out there was pretty much exclusively on AOL, instant messenger, chat rooms, and blogs. Now, none of those things were really active during that time, No, right? (laughs) Uh, So one, there's not a lot of research into it. The other thing is that children and adolescents tend to be an under-researched group anyway. So that's always difficulty. So, but at that time, what parents were worried about and what media was worried about everyone was that children were going online and they were talking to strangers and then that was going to lead to like abductions or you know child predators and things like that and at that time that wasn't the case what what was seen was that children were mostly online talking to people they knew in their everyday lives now completely different that doesn't even come close to what things are now now, not only are you communicating with any person you've ever met and all their extended friends, but now you are absolutely communicating with strangers online. Oh, yeah. um, and when you have celebrities that you were able to communicate with, like you can respond to their comments or things like this, you see their daily lives uh, and, you, and you're able to, I think, connect more with who you're seeing, right? Because prior, like if someone was, you know, like a pop star, like you would just see them on TV. And that was pretty much it, right? You catch an interview here, catch an interview Mm -hmm. there, you're reading magazines, getting glimpses. So you don't, they still had this, like celebrity, there was still a distance, right? Now with Instagram, or Twitter, you know, people, pop stars are also revealing their themselves who they are, quote unquote, when they're not the celebrity that they are as well, They're, they're real time like home environments, things like that, it makes it seem like you know this person more, right? Which means anything that person does or says now has more weight to it. Are you seeing a difference in, you know, your clients? Like, are you seeing a difference in their self-worth because of this? Because I feel like now children are kind of relating themselves to these likes and these comments and like, oh, my favorite pop star got back to me or things like Mm -hmm. that. Well, yeah. And to be honest, like what I have seen with celebrities is even up with, you know, the adults that I see, the women I see in their 30s and 20s is definitely when it comes to like group beauty traditional standards, body positivity, where it tends to be more negative. That's what I definitely see a lot where, you know, people are often talking about Instagram and how that makes them feel about themselves. And it tends to be more negative about their bodies. So they're not talking about sexualized impact, but part of that makes sense because depending on their age, they may not be aware of it. But I think an important point I want to make, and this was a large part of my dissertation as well, when we think about technology originally, first, TVs were only in the family room, right? Okay, then one of us suddenly got a TV in our bedroom. Computers, again, in the family room. Over time, they've kind of gone into you know our room. Now we have our phones. And I look at phones as an extension of personality because there's a difference when you see messages come across a, a, a family TV in the family room 
and a message just coming across your personal phone that you have decorated, you have customized, that you hold all the time, you put on your person, you sleep with, right? So the mode that you're receiving information becomes that much more meaningful. So for adolescents, when they're able to get their developmental needs met, they attach more meaning to that method, right? So cell phones are more than just technology. They really are an extension of uh, I think people's identity, and I, and I say the same thing for adults. There's there's no difference here, right? Other than, I mean, correction, there are differences, but the same things that you know children and adolescents struggle with, so do adults. It's about understanding the power of it, which is I think what you guys are talking about when you're when you're you're bringing out the point of celebrities or pop stars, or you guys had referenced some dolls that were sexually suggestive, excuse me, or or movies that are targeted. Those things absolutely have an impact, but I think it's also to understand that becomes even more impactful now because I think of the phone and what a phone means to people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, looking at media that this influence on the youth, you know, you're seeing Mm -hmm. children that are eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, having their own Instagrams or having access to more of these visuals and how that affects their development in a sexual way. I know that, for example, I mean, the internet was not a thing when I was a child, but when I was younger, I would read romance novels and that opened my mind to a sexual world that I did definitely not understand or comprehend, but by about 10 years old, I was all of a sudden sex was something that was with, within the media that I was consuming. Mm-hmm. And it was a romance novel and that was what I was exposed to. Children are exposed to so much more now. They're influenced by their peers, but we're seeing that, you know, 12-year-olds are able to watch 15-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, and them of those older ages living their life. Do you notice that the younger generation is then in a way sort of fast forwarding through their youth more towards adult themes within their life? Well, sure. You were talking about like loss of innocence and fast forwarding. So not every, as I said, not everyone is impacted the same. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the factors that children and teens who are probably more at risk for exactly what you're talking about. So first off, yes, what are some of the negative impacts? Absolutely, there's an earlier onset for sexual activity or the possibility. Everything here is a possibility. There are no absolutes, okay? So you have earlier onset for sexual activity. There's promiscuity. Um, There can be a sense of self-worth that is based on sexual attention from others. And I think that is a key point when it comes to social media and Instagram, like you were saying, Deanna. Yeah, absolutely. The The moment you said that, I started nodding my head. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not only can they feel sexually objectified, um, what happens is they also start holding sexual objectifications of others, right? So it's not just what they take in, and then it, it also changes how they view others. Also, there's an increased possibility of mental health concerns, such as anxiety, depression, uh, health concerns. If, you know, if they're engaging in sexual behaviors, they're at a higher risk for STIs. Um, and then once these things happen, then yeah, they're more at risk for substance use or even legal issues. So what kind of makes some children or adolescents more vulnerable and susceptible to this than to others? would be one, uh, children or teens who have a poorly developed like decision-making skills. Uh, they have limited insight into limited insight and judgment into how their behaviors impact themselves or others. Very impulsive people, uh, teens and children who externalize their distress. So when something is going on that's upsetting them, they're more likely to act out versus other children and teens who internalize and they kind of keep it within themselves. Um, any sort of uh, substance use, children and teens who come from uh, families that were very chaotic, any sort of abuse, physical, emotional, but especially sexual abuse, um, which would probably be the foundation of earlier uh, sexualized uh, just behaviors. Uh, children and teens who have a poor sense of who they are and they need validation from others, as well as in families where there's poor uh, parental attachment or involvement. In my research, there is this quote I put in that is from a, I think it was a 17-year-old who said, 
when you get nice messages, it makes you feel loved. And that's what I'm saying. That's, that's very powerful and that's very poignant. So to your point, like when you're talking about likes and things like that, that becomes the focus, right? It's like, how do I increase my likes? Because my likes mean love, love, right? Yeah. And then it's coming from your phone. Again, like the, it just makes it a little bit more intense. I mean, I think there's actually science behind it that it creates a dopamine effect in the mind when you see you're getting yourself a lot of those likes, a lot of comments on certain images. I know that people my age even at, you know, mid-30s will delete pictures that don't get a ton of likes. And it's just as if you are specifically creating an image to be loved that is almost inauthentic to who you actually are. I think part of that comes with that people are attaching now their self-worth to these images that they're posting and the likes and comments that they get. And what effect is this going to have like really long term? Because we're seeing that now when you know, social media was not a thing when I was a child. And now you're seeing these 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 13-year-olds who are attaching their self-worth. What do you think, Nicole, how do you think that's going to play out when they do become adults? What sort of issues Mm -hmm. may arise within society or do you think might show up within their own personal life? Well, I I think that it's already happened, right? Because uh, social media isn't, isn't new, right? You know, Facebook has been around 15 plus years. Obviously it changes. So Instagram, obviously in in the popularity, but if we're looking at kids who were maybe 13 when it came out, they're now 20. They didn't have access to it in the way that kids do now. Like you said, you know, there was one computer in the household. You could check your Facebook maybe. I mean, I don't know. Facebook started, it was literally a college thing. So there wasn't for my generation, something when we were doing, going through this pre-prepubescent age or adolescence where I could attach my worth to pictures or likes, you know, it was actually mm-hmm. more peer. It was more what, say, what I was being voted for in high school in the high school yearbook or how many friends you have or how many parties you were invited to or how often you went out, yada, yada. And nowadays it's almost all associated, like you said, with a a phone of which kids are holding in their hand. So instead of having the real life feedback from peers, it's now feedback from strangers of every age group across the world. Yeah, but you're still absolutely getting feedback from peers though. And that peer stuff is, trust me, they still talk about being invited to parties and how many friends they have. Those things don't stay. So you're asking, like, it's, it's, it's hard to say, right? Because, again, the research isn't there. So a lot of what I just said about the potential for promiscuity, low self-worth, value of who you are from validation of others. And I think that that is probably the bigger part there. It's the validation of others. You know, when you put something out into the world, the majority of the time, you're looking to get something back. And I think that part of it is what needs to be explored and understood. So when parents, you know, or us as professionals are working with children, teens, or even young adults, it's what were you hoping for something to come back and what does that give you? Because that's really important information because then you're able to understand what is motivating and what is important to teens. uh, So then you can help them get those needs met, but maybe through some more Uh, adaptive ways or to understand, I mean, I think like the unrealistic expectations would probably be one of the biggest outcomes you see, right? So, you know, people think that working out that many time or having a specific body type or even just things of like items, the amount of cars and houses and and the, the, the extent of it. It's hard to say, uh, but yeah, like anything, there is a risk. And I think we've touched on it. Like and I think you guys have always touched on it too, that, you know, more importantly, cognitively, uh, emotionally, children and, and teens are not, are not ready for this. Right. Yeah. So you, the, they just aren't like, like look at our, our, our own nephew, right. He's so innocent, right. He's just like, everything is sort of new and magical and he questions things really looking like whatever you tell him, he's going to 
not necessarily believe, but, but soak in like a sponge. And then kids, people get to a point, kids get to a point where they're soaking that in now of pop stars that uh, like Miley Cyrus, right? Miley Cyrus was someone that kids loved. Hannah Montana was so popular. And then to break away from being a child star, the pop star, then she went in the complete opposite sort of direction you would say she went and embraced all of her sexuality and flaunted that and that is very powerful for her and I'm not saying anything against her as a woman mm-hmm. but the effects that that then has on the very the younger children sure. that looked up to her and then that kind of like oh so then for me to then not be a child anymore I need to wear more skimpy outfits I need to express myself in a more sexual way I need to twerk or you know, wear booty shorts or get romantic attention from other people and that kind of a sense. When they're, when they don't even understand what they're doing. Cause in yeah. Cuties, the girls did these. Yeah. I, I like what you said, Deanna, about the, let's take the example of Miley Cyrus. Cause I, although I've never seen Hannah Montana, I know enough about it to know enough about it. So <laughs> I do understand. Same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I 100% understand that the phenomena that was Hannah Montana. Oh, I, get, I get that all the way, right? And then, like you said, as Miley involved in herself, so did her she image. as an artist and everything else. Mm-hmm. So what I think when things like that happens, one, the people that are closer to age in that evolve with her. And then what happens is I just see kids not being as interested in. I don't see that like a 10-year-old then sees Miley twerking. Because then things have changed. That 10-year-old, like, you know, like, that was on Nickelodeon or Disney, right? Like, you know, content on Nickelodeon, yeah. Dizzy, you know, even their most progressive content is still limited, right? So they still aren't necessarily following them as much because it, it's, it doesn't make sense to a 10-year-old, right? Now, some will absolutely do that. and But like I said, those tend to be children or teens who tend to have a little bit more of risk factors. Um, and it can absolutely have an impact on it, right? But it's always, it's it rarely is one thing ever in, that impactful. Nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds, they're not really talking. I don't hear them talk about booty shorts. I don't hear about them. That they definitely like, don't get me wrong, they want to look cute. You know, they worry about their clothes. You know, honestly, um, not a lot in my experience have access uh, to Instagram parents, uh, many parents anyway, and not, not all, but, you know, do limit a lot of it. And then it gets to the point where parents don't, right? So they like limit it pretty well, I would say to like 12. Yeah. You know, they're pretty like 12, 13, they are pretty, they're pretty on it. And then it's a free for all. Then many times it yeah. kind of turns into a free for all. Can I ask why you think that that happens at that age? Yeah, because uh, teens start to get older, more independent, and they start fighting back, right? So-and-so's mom lets me do it. Mom, you're just overreacting. They also now are smarter to get around it, right? So you can have apps on the phone and things like this. But, you know, you have your phone, you have your tablet, you have your laptop. You can't, like, it's very difficult with now the literally the, the physical amount of technology we have. It is an ongoing process to stay on top of your children and how they use technology. Yeah. Kids are so smart with that. Like as as a former teacher, my students were able to, you know, all the schools have like blocks in place and kids were constantly finding ways to get around those blocks. Yeah, exactly. You know, and parents often feel intimidated by technology and they don't feel like they know. Um, and also like, like, like a lot of it is that parents not everyone always understands the implications. I would say that there are more parents in my practices that express concern over social media uh, than not. Is there a common theme of what they're expressing concern over with social media? Sure. They absolutely worry about any sort of chat features. So they'll let their kids play certain games if there's no chat features because they're worried about what is going to be said in chats. And it's not just sexual comments that, you know, there's vulgar or uh, bullying or just violent and just, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, intense, you know, intense things as well as the, you know, the sexual nature of it. No, it, I would definitely say that parents definitely when it comes to young women, young girls, they do worry about the some of the sexual content. Absolutely. I have yet to really hear uh, any parents of uh, young men express that concern. I think they express concern with the amount that uh, their children are on the phone, right, or have access to technology. That's interesting that there's a difference between, you know, the the gender and the parents and the questions that they're asking. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's because I think traditionally this was an area where it was perceived that only women will have uh, like negative outcomes to it or only women are influenced by sexual or young girls are influenced by sexual uh, media out there, but uh, there's no difference between boys can be just as negatively. They are, uh, yeah. They just so are. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's no difference there, right? Yeah. It, they just are, but it, it goes to how things are looked at and and understood, you know. Which is why I talk a lot in context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the comments that you had made off mic was that how important it is to like how parents understand things and then Mm -hmm. how it is addressed and that a lot of the issue that you saw was that within the practice was that your parent the parents weren't understanding the nature of this stuff and then explaining it to the kids of course kids are getting confused by it or getting their information elsewhere from Mm -hmm. it uh what has been found is that What's more effective than monitoring uh, children's uh, technology use is actually having open dialogues. That actually is it's a more effective way to kind of neg- negate any kind of negative, right? And so it's about understanding. So it comes down to like a benefit of having pop stars and other social media influencers and seeing your friends is you do get a chance to practice your self-presentation. Right. And I also say that you get to practice your your sexual self-presentation. So I'm glad you're making this point because I did want to touch on that a little bit. It's actually in a way you can look at it in a couple ways. Children going, you know, even seven, eight year old, nine year olds. Right. We all practice our self-presentation. It is comparable when you look at children, when they start to dress themselves, start to do their own hair and start to figure out makeup. Right. That is still them practicing their self-presentation out into the world. Mm-hmm. It can also be done online. The thing about that's that is a double-edged sword, you can say, is in one sense, very powerful is learning from others. So they can see how other people are expressing themselves online, their sexual sub, you know, presentation. And so they can actually see before they do anything themselves what they like and what they don't like. What are the kind of responses and attention certain things get? What is it that they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with, right? So you kind of get to learn through essentially others before you you do something, right? Now, the difference being that in person, maybe a couple people in your school look at you or the mall online, once you have something out there, it is out there. And it's not always given to the audience it's intended for, right? Because so many people have access that, no, you're not, you're, you know, you're being, you're putting out this content, even when it's passive content at that time, right? You're not actively do something. You posted it, it's there. So now it's, you're putting out this sexual self-presentation or just your self-presentation and it's, it's being viewed by people it was never intended for as well. It's just an unintended consequence. Well, yeah. And that's where some of it being online is a little bit more tricky and has sometimes, you know, obviously like the implications and consequences are, you know, can be a little bit more. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard one because then what people want are likes, right? Because yeah. likes is validation. Likes is no different, you know, than in thinking that someone at school likes me. So I think it's for parents to understand, like, when you put this picture of you out, right, or when you use a screen name that has a sexual innuendo in it, whether or not you know it's a, that's the other thing. Kids use comments and words that they don't know what they mean as well, right? They just can see someone they may look up to or someone they saw on Instagram that had like 69 or pink or like a, you know, you know, or something about a larger penis, like whatever it is, right, without even understanding it. 
So one, it's about the conversation. How were you feeling in this picture? What were you trying to like, like tell others, right? And how do you think people like saw that? What do you think they thought? Then you have to understand like how their minds are working to help guide them. When we talk about young children, uh, it's a lot of black and white thinking, right? Mm -hmm. It's this or it's that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Abstract Mm -hmm. concepts, uh, complex thoughts or behaviors that's not they're not there developmentally so it's a way to start understanding what are they trying to do what are they trying to need and then it will help you whoever's working with them to then help develop that within them so they start to understand that so it doesn't then continually then progress because it's when it goes unaltered where then there's a lot a lot of trouble there well and i've heard that you know, if a child is exposed to something sexual, you can't take that back. But it sounds like from what you're saying is you can at least help to shape how they then go forward with that information sure. you know, by having discussions with them. Honest, but, you know, they're at their age level, appropriate discussions of saying, yeah. yes, you were exposed to this, but this is what it means in terms that you understand. And hopefully that answers enough of their questions that they don't try and seek more information from the Internet. Well, or at least when you see that they're going to continue to seek it. Yeah. The hope is they start to understand it differently. But mm. I think it's important, Meg, to, to also know that like one, like one exposure to sex, like a sexual content, it really depends what it is. Like I gave yeah. the example to Deanna yesterday, like many children walk in on their parents having sex. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about something traumatic, you know, traumatizing, <laughs> yeah. right? But there's no, I mean, there's no long-term consequences because of that. You know, there, there's movies and stuff, like exactly what we're talking about, right? Oh, I really love that. Where did you hear that, Megan? Do you remember that once a child is exposed to something that they're not going to forget it? But It's not that they're not going to forget it. It's that they, they've been exposed to it now, so it's like it's with them. It yeah. doesn't mean that they're going to act on it, but it just well, might no. provoke more questions or more research. And it's, it was in that interview that I, that I watched about the uh, director actually, okay. you know, she was just kind of saying like, once they're exposed, how, and this is the question kind mm-hmm. of of the movie is like, how do we handle targeting the appropriate, like the age appropriate information? Because like you said, children have access to their peers. They have access to the internet. They have access to all these tools that aren't necessarily their parents, mm-hmm. you know? And so how do parents kind of interject there and say, Hey, you know, all right, you have questions like let's sit down and, and discuss it. Cause I know for parents, I know Deanna and I, we've discussed this, how, growing up with conversations was very different you know yeah. so maybe how can parents kind of address this if their children have kind of mm-hmm. come up with some questions that they weren't necessarily ready or prepared to address yet oh most of the time parents are never ready uh, you can just, it just yeah, I've de- you, never, you think you're ready yeah and then the child <laughs> drops me that parent freezes like a deer in headlights you're never ready. But I just want to go back to your point you're talking about, Meg, and like once a child has been exposed. Like, again, they don't always carry things with them. But what I would say is that what it does is every exposure starts to desensitize you, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So one exposure, the desensitization isn't that great, right? But more mm-hmm. and more exposures, which is what you're talking about when you're talking about more media, more yeah. social media. It's that desensitization, excuse me, that I actually think is part of the issue because it doesn't seem to be a big deal or it's very common. Yeah, you know? I mean, you're not just looking at one thing on Instagram. Mm-hmm. You're scrolling through hundreds and yeah. hundreds of images. And, you know, if you click on one, you're going to be then shown more things similar that that's how it works online is you know the algorithm and so then yeah you are you're seeing these children and seeing things over and over a sexy image over and over again or sexually explicit yeah that also came into play and not we're not going to go into the discussion with toys too much here because we did with our parent conversation but um that was mentioned with some of these toys where you know buttons were placed in provocative areas making questionable sounds and you know just because of the release of that toy they said that that is a form of desensitization for these children now that you can't really take back and like no there's no huge lasting harm and they've you know removed the toy since then but 
it is still there. And so it's kind of like we have to be wary and look out for things like this. Because all those little moments add up. See, mm-hmm. And I think exactly. it's understanding that. It's understanding the context. So when you ask me, like, what can parents do? Well, one thing, the way to get comfortable having uncomfortable conversations is by having a lot of uncomfortable conversations. That's the only way to start to get comfortable with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that was something that Christine said in the parent um, conversation that we had was that, you know, it it turned out that she was needing to have more mini conversations, 15-minute uncomfortable conversations over and over again, sometimes on the same subject but in different ways until yeah. her child was able to understand it. And that then – sort of prevented her from having to have like one big all-encompassing super confusing and overwhelming difficult conversation and so I'd assume that would be similar for most parents is it's better to almost have those smaller broken down conversations in like increments of a Mm -hmm. sense to get more comfortable well that and it changes right you can't there is no one conversation fits all Right, yeah. the conversation you have in sex with Dion, like you're saying with a seven-year-old, that conversation is very different to with a twelve-year-old. So, mm-hmm. like you're saying, yes, it has to be part of just normal conversations within the family, because ultimately, what you want is you want your child coming to you. So, if they see something online, you want them to tell you. If they see something that confuses them or is scary, or someone reaches out and makes them uncomfortable, you want them to go to you and not fear that they're going to get into trouble. Like that is one of the bigger things is you have, you want to create an environment where your children can come back to adults, right? So that can help them in those situations because no, no child, no teenager is really equipped to deal with those kind of things. A lot of adults are not either, but you really want to facilitate it where it's not like, and that's why I think it's important not to always put derogatory comments on, like parents often say, oh, the kid's always on the phone. It's just that phone. You're always on that stupid phone. And when I said to you before, well, the phone is like hugely important and yeah. it is a connection to their peers. Let's be clear. They are still texting and FaceTiming the majority of their time is still with people that they are, that they know. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can't, because what it does is because then you become a lecturer, right? And, and no one yeah. wants to be lectured to. Also, it's really hypocritical or excuse, yeah, it's hypocritical because parents are on their phones the same amount. I have parents in my office on, on their phones during, you know, sessions and I just, I wait for them. Oh, it's the most frustrating thing in the world, people on their phones. Right? <laughs> yes. When we look at stuff like sex or those behaviors, it's a very intimate thing, right? Now, when you do it, and when you think about intimacy, it's very close to you, right? Very personal. Now, when, you, when you're being exposed through things that are not right in front of you, there's a separation. So it doesn't feel quite as real, right? No, it's a TV show. No, they're just online. Okay. But if you start to then engage in sexual behaviors, you're engaging in very intimate behaviors and thoughts and feelings in a very non-intimate way, right? And that, that that's very incongruent. And we don't do well when we have a lot of incongruence, when things don't line up between like our thoughts, our behaviors, our actions, and our ability to understand stuff, it, it creates a lot of, we'll just say, tension inside, right? So you can have children or teens or young kids who are at dinner table having conversations about their day, your parents are talking about their day, and they're sexting. Oh my, I, yeah. Right? So then what wow. does that do now when you extrapolate that for a second? Okay, let's think about that for a second. What that then does is, again, you get the desensitization, excuse me, I'm going to mispronounce that word of that content and those behaviors, right? And a lot of times when you're having these kind of images, you're not necessarily with, you're not in that same level of relationship as the person you're doing it with, right? So like if you're seeing these, you know, these are not people you know necessarily online or if you're exchanging pictures or if you're putting out sexually provocative things out there or you're getting this information back, like generally sex and sexual behaviors typically are with people that you know or in a, some sort of relationship with and you're a little bit closer, but now you're doing it with people that there are there isn't that connection with that in-person connection. So yeah. how I see that playing out is 
then when you are in person, what it does is you're now at a farther state in your sexual relationship than you are in your relationship in general. Right. And sex is so, is such a complicated thing anyway, like developmentally, no, cognitively, emotionally, children and teens are not ready for that, especially when it's that incongruent. So yes, it can speed up, you know, I, I think sexual behaviors. I also think that it possibly puts you in a chance. It's easy to say things online, right? And so that's like a good thing, right? Because I can practice being sexual online. And if it goes too far, I can just not answer. Or I can write LOL, right, to kind of save face. Or you can say online, yeah, I want to hook up. Okay. Uh, It never follows through. Exactly. In person, though, it is harder to say that. But it's also harder to recover. And if you're in person and you've already said these things online, although it is not a valid reason or okay, someone else may feel like the expectation is out there, or you may feel like you already put it out there. So now you have to move forward with some sort of sexual behavior because you've already said it. You've already, in theory, done it, you know, through text already, and you may not be ready. So it's, it's, you know, it's, I would say overall more like, concerning than not concerning uh, but it's very complicated because it's hard when you can get po- like that's that's the thing you can have positive and negative things pretty much about anything and I think it's important to look yeah. at both because when we only look at thing one-sided we are just not one-sided and we want to make it as open as possible so people can see themselves in it otherwise the thought is not me not my child not my situation I'm glad that you mentioned that because as we were talking, a thought came into my mind. And on the positive side, I was wondering if you've seen it all in the practice or you think that now that children are more exposed to these things out there, if that is also exposing them to a wider variety of sexual preferences and allowing children to then maybe be more accepting of and aware yeah of maybe like being non-binary or asexual or queer in some way of which they're not witnessing within their family structure or their community as much but they're well, seeing it online communities yeah online. yeah and then yeah it's true right and then they're able to find communities of which they're just being able to go online and say like oh there's somebody out there that feels the same way in, like me you know, yeah. if they haven't seen it in their personal life, but they're like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm either wrong or I'm what's wrong with me. And then being able to find somebody online that does align with like this as well, or I don't Yeah. Like one of the things that we've discussed in other podcasts and in life is that growing up for me in my world, I wasn't aware of all of the sexuality. There was straight, there was gay, and there was bi, and those were pretty much the only things that I was aware of. And then I became, you know, as I got a lot older, I realized that there's a whole, there's a whole spectrum to it. Mm -hmm. But now that's more out there. And I was just curious if you think that children being able to be aware of the spectrum at a younger age is actually leading to some more uh, sexual positivity within their life. Yeah, 100%. I think that what a great way, and yes, I I think earlier exposure is a thing because representation matters, right? But good representation matters more. So it's great to find a community, but it's also finding a healthy community. But yes, to find out that there are other people like you that that do not necessarily see their gender as as one or the other or that you know understanding what like what does spectrum mean and understanding that not only like that there is no like even bisexuality is not like a 50% thing not like i 50% like men and i 50% like women for some people they do for many people that's not how it is yeah. you know and the strengths like yeah i like men and women but you know what i find myself at this point in my life more attract, like I'm more strongly attracted to men, right? And that that does shift and that's hard, but I think that it gives a great opportunity for education, for support. Uh, There, you know, LGBTQT kids and that population is one of the most at-risk populations we have. High, very high levels of suicide, uh, being kicked out of your homes, uh, then subsequent mental health issues or substance issues, or even things like getting in, in, I don't know the right word, but like 
essentially prostitution just so you can live because your parents have kicked you out at 15 and what are you to do next? So yes, I think that is where information and community and connection is ultimately important. And I think it's fantastic, not only for children, but then also for their parents as well, or others in the family or others just in general, mm-hmm. right? Because the more we know, the more we understand, and then we know how to help or best have an idea of how to help, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know everything. Like parents, like parents aren't given a, a handbook for anything. They don't know how to have conversations. No, and it changes from kid to kid anyway. Yeah. So even if you were to handle things with one child that you have, the next child's going to need you to parent in a new way. Yeah. In, you know. So, you know, I think the information part of it, I think is outstanding. Yeah. I think that it, like, it also just, it depends on development and being able to differentiate healthy environments and toxic environments because there's absolutely toxic communities of no matter where you are right but you want healthy ones uh and ones that do offer support and you know even letting you know about resources or, or things like that speaking of you know healthy situations and healthy experiences um i know we wanted to kind of touch on what does healthy sexuality look like in children at different stages because I know every child develops differently but is there kind of like a an idea of what we might see in kids at different ages generally sure you know I I think that children don't understand identity right that that's not a concept they could they quite understand now that doesn't mean they don't understand liking people or their bodies like their bodies feel bodies feel good so I often have parents with who have children who are somewhere between two and four who have their hand on their penis, their vagina, or are touching parents's. It tends to be breasts and think it's hilarious. So as far as like your body and sex, it's a pretty straightforward thing for kids at young age. They touch themselves because it feels good, period, right? So then it's like your, like your friend had said, you teach time and place. It's fine to touch yourself, to explore, to look. It feels good. But those are things we do in the privacy of our own, in our bedroom or in our bathroom. So then as they get a little bit older, it's like past that, then shame and guilt start to come in, right? Because then they start to know, oh, these are certain things we do not only at home, but there's some shame to it, right? Like, oh, you shouldn't touch yourself, right? You know, not all families are open to masturbation or you know, any kind of body exploration. So that, that's where kind of shame can can start to come into play as well as confusion. So if you're not having any conversations, kids don't understand what's happening to their bodies. And then as you gain a little bit older, so now we're talking, now we're going into 9, 10, 11, now 12, and probably around the, some 10, some 11, more 11, and then into 12, now you're starting Sexuality is not just yourself. It then starts to become towards others too, which is why this tends to be a time where people start dating. But all that, you know, really depends as well. I have some 14-year-olds who are nowhere near dating, right? Yeah. They, they cannot, they can't have sexual conversations. They're, they get very embarrassed easily. And then there's others who have absolutely no problem with it. And then so it's also then like when you're in, let's say, 12, we'll just say go on. Now you start to exploring with other people, right? So it's, you know, age appropriate. Like when you talk about dating, you know, holding hands, hugging, maybe some kissing, right? And then it kind of like into the teenage years, then it progresses into other behaviors. In relating this to kind of what got us started with the whole cuties thing is there were a lot of negative feedbacks and comments towards this film. But the whole purpose of the film that we that we kind of found out from watching uh, an interview with the director was, you know, she kind of asked, are we able to essentially separate ourselves from the images that are portrayed constantly to us from the media and online and things like that? And, you know, going forward for children, you know, is there anything that you can kind of maybe suggest mm-hmm. for parents to be on the lookout for to kind of build up those children's self-esteem and things and, and let them know that you don't have to relate yourself to everything you see online. You are wonderful and great, you know, exactly how you are and be confident in yourself. Well, I think it's exactly what you just said, Meg. So starting at an early age, right? Like we're talking about starting when children are very young, two, three, four, especially 
you start those conversations, you start talking about self-worth. You start talking about uh, individual strengths and differences, right? That just because you have a weakness in one area, it doesn't mean anything other than it's just not as strong as some other things you're capable of, right? Because like I said before, one of the bigger issues is when you have limited insight and judgment. Well, you're not, insight just means understanding, right? You're not just born with understanding. That has to, you have to learn how to have understanding into yourself and to others. And that comes from your parents. So I would argue that, some of the most important conversations, no, the most important conversations are going to, should come from whoever are your guardians, right? And not necessarily biological parents. Um, that's just more of a general term. But yes, from an early age, Meg, that's what you do. You talk about self-worth. You talk about validation because the truth is people who seek out external validation, it will never be enough, because if you can't validate yourself, you're constantly seeking others, which is why those likes keep going and why there is never an end point because it's not enough. Because the only way that you feel good is that that photo has got 57 likes in a minute and has been shared 3,000 times versus the fact that you like that picture and you don't care that it didn't get three likes to it or that you didn't share it with the world. You just liked it for you. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I don't know how many times we just keep things to ourselves for us. You know, it becomes very much of it occurs, it goes out. So I think that, you know, those are important conversations. That was really beautiful. And do you have any tips for maybe parents that are struggling with their own self-worth? One of the groups that you said was most at risk are children that don't have that strong foundation at home. And I think that would go along with maybe the parents not even having a full understanding of this or having, you know, high self-worth or self-confidence. How do you would say to somebody who wants to be able to pass that forward to their child and give them the confidence that they don't even have themselves? Well, sure. One, yeah, you got to fake it till you make it. Yeah. If you're in genuine, your children pick up on that. They understand hypocrisy, right? So if you're constantly walking around saying how terrible you look, even if you don't think someone's listening, they're listening, okay? So humans are humans. People are people regardless of age. So the same things that you're advising your children to do are the exact same things you need to do for yourself. You have to start with loving yourself, validating who you are and what you are and understanding. And I think this is the bigger point here. Like we are not meant to be perfect. Humans are meant to error. And just because you make a mistake, it does not mean that everything about you is that. And that's And I think that's an important point. So parents have to start doing it. And a lot of times what I tell parents is you have to model for kids. If you want them to start to develop critical thinking abilities, you have to demonstrate what your critical thinking abilities are. So like a way I have parents just demonstrate that. I go, when you make a mistake at work, right? And, you know, you, you messed up a schedule and then you had to call somebody in and they got annoyed. I go, say that, say that at dinner time. You know, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Yeah. You know what? They're annoyed. Okay. I apologize. I'll buy them a coffee next week. It'll be all right. They knew that I covered for them last time. Or when you're going to do run errands, right? You got a grocery store, hardware store, and clothes store. Well, most people do the grocery store last, right? Well, kids don't know that. So you have to talk that out. Like, hey, you know what? We got to do these three errands today. I think we're going to hit up Lowe's first because it's the closest. You know what? Then let's head over to TJ Maxx because that's going to be fun and we're going to wander around for a long time. And then we'll go to Publix because then we can just pick up the food and we don't have to worry about it in the car or worry about us being at TJ Maxx for too long. That's how you start to develop critical thinking ability. So it really needs to be modeled. That's great. Observation is so impactful. You know, like you've said, children are sponges. We learn from our environment, which is what this entire podcast is about. It's about learning from our environment, right? So parents, again, you say positive things about yourself. And if that's tough, then do not say the negative ones out loud, at least, right? (laughs) Yeah. Because the truth in, in repetition cannot be done enough because a lot of times when it comes to our negative self, like how we see ourselves, we're very rigid in our thinking, right? So we're only seeing things a very certain way. And 
what I have seen for those who are very highly critical of themselves, they are very rigid in how they see the world, especially how they see themselves. So it's starting to have some flexibility there. You can make a mistake without being all bad. You're not a bad person. You made a bad choice. I love that. Or you can take Miley Cyrus or even Jamie Spears, right? She got pregnant at maybe 16. That's it. But when, you, when you're that harsh on a 16-year-old, what that does is what you're telling your child is, if you get pregnant at 16, there's no leeway here. You cut off Jamie Lynn Sprayers. You say that she's a bad role model. You say she's bad. You say that she's lost everything. She's let down everyone. She didn't let down everyone. She doesn't owe people that. She got pregnant. She made a mistake. You know, poor girl. It's, she's not a celebrity. She's a 16-year-old girl who happens to be on TV. And I think that that's what people forget when they look at celebrities is that these are actually real people too. So you don't have to support a behavior not to overly condemn it. And I think that that part's important because when your children hear how you speak about others, they hear then how you're thinking about them. They don't, they, they don't, there's no differentiation to them. So when they hear how negative you are about this person or how negative you are about sexuality in general, or, oh, she's showing skit, like that all impacts how we then learn and look. So I think it's about understanding you want your children coming to you before they make the mistake and you surely want them coming to you after they make the mistake. You can be upset, you can be frustrated, there can be consequences, but what children don't know is that they are still loved, especially at eight, when we're talking like six, seven, eight-year-olds, five-year-olds. It's very difficult for them to understand the concept they can love and hate somebody at the same time, which is really upset, which is why kids, you know, you, you don't want to get into trouble and then you do everything you can so you're not found out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The beauty of it, there is no specific one way. There are no perfect words. There is no perfect ongoing conversation. I think if you are involved in your child's life and you have open conversations, like if you ask your child a question or you ask them what they're interested in, your next job is to close your lips and listen. Your job is not to then tell them why they're obsessed and why that is they need to get over it or how unrealistic it is. It's it doesn't matter if you don't like it. What's important is you need to understand why your child does. What is it you like about this Miley Cyrus or whatever kind of the image it is, right? Or this movie or these dolls. What is it you like about it? Because if children are constantly telling you all the things that are very important to them and parents are shooting it down, that's not a message that uh, you want to convey to your child. Because basically what you're saying is the things that are most important to you, I, I don't think have any value. Yeah. Well, and that's that's even good information that you can use just in a, a regular life, not even just for children, but yeah. how you address and talk to, you know, all the people you come in contact with and, you know, how you handle your intimate relationships. Yeah. You know, a little bit bringing this back to social media, I feel as if social media gives us the illusion that perfection is attainable because you make those perfect posts or those perfect images and you're able to edit images to to make it seem, you know, more, I hate to keep using the word, but more perfect. Yeah. I feel so silly because I haven't even, as a grown adult, can't always tell when somebody's edited their photos, like whether it's their hair or their makeup or their features or things like sometimes I'm like, wow, that person looks amazing. And then somebody would be like, yeah, but it's totally edited. And I'm, I'm a grown adult and I can't tell. So I can't even imagine like younger kids. Yeah. I mean, I went to photography school. I, I studied digital imaging. I did a lot of Photoshopping and even I struggle sometimes to see or to remember oh, that that's not reality there. That is a social media image. And those are two very separate things. And people only are going to, or typically people put the highlights up on social media and the best parts of themselves, as opposed to being like, man, I really messed up at work today and I got in trouble. Deanna, I really liked your point. And I, I want to just speak to that real quick because you're right about the that perfection being attainable. And yeah. I think like, you're right. Prior to this, it was what? Movies, TV shows, and magazines. Again, yeah. people they don't know. Now their classmates mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. touching their videos, like touching themselves up. So now they're taking the people around them are now looking more perfect, which is again, is more impactful than even the, 
celebrities. So Deanna, you're right. Like that is even a, I think a larger thing to, to consider as well. Oh yeah. I mean, and they've got those filters and every once in a while I would put a filter on and go to say something and I'm like, oh, well, look at me. And then I take the filter off and I'm like, oh, well, look at me. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> I've made true, an though. active choice to not use filters in any sort of any, anything other than like a very silly, fun way, because I know I don't want to mess with my mental health in that manner. And it, it does in a matter of like minutes within using it. So it is, it's just so easy and prevalent to. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, it almost goes to that desensitization that we were talking about. Like, you know, you expose yourself to something so much that you kind of get desensitized. And it's like, if you expose yourself to these filters and this filtered version of you, will you get desensitized to kind of like what, what you actually look like, you know? And that almost, I feel like creates a level of self. I don't want to say hate, but you know, that you dislike yourself without those filters. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a lot of resources out there. And I think it's the more resources you use, the better we all are. So there are professionals out there. There are books on child development. You know, there are ways to learn how to have these conversations, talking to either other parents as well. You know, use your own support system around you to see how they've handled those conversations with their children, particularly if they have a child who's older than yours anyway, they've maybe already hit this a few years earlier. So I I think it's just about, again, being comfortable with uncomfortable conversation. Which you can truly only do by having them and being uncomfortable. Yes. With that, thank you so much for joining us here today, Dr. Nicole Agresto, based in Tampa. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it very much. Um, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak on the behalf of children and adolescents. Join us next time for some more fun discussions. If you have any comments, please leave them at my ovaries made me on Twitter. We're always looking for great feedback and to continue on talking with you. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay curious. Mm-hmm.